You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Uh, three guests this week uh, as part of a roundtable. Uh, I really, really enjoyed doing this. These are three of my colleagues at The Athletic. Uh, three really terrific uh, writers and reporters, all under 30, so major futures with uh, these three, as well as a major present as well. Uh, Michael Sean Dugar covers the Seahawks for The Athletic and host the Seahawks Man to Man podcast. Rhiannon Walker uh, was a beat writer for The Athletic covering the Washington football team. She's now currently a feature writer where she covers a uh, multitude of different topics. Tashawn Reed covers the Las Vegas Raiders for The Athletic. He previously covered Florida State football for The Athletic. And um, and we get into a lot of interesting uh, issues in terms of what it's like to cover the NFL draft from a beat reporter perspective, who and how they get their information from, whether NFL executives are truthful or not when it comes to the draft, uh, what readers want from their coverage, talk about the beat and it can be all consuming, uh, how it impacts your personal life, how it impacts your time with your family, uh, what readers or what they think readers want from their coverage, uh, being writers of color on the beat. And then we finish up uh, with Elon Musk buying Twitter and just how they view it, because they're uh, all three of them have a pretty active presence on Twitter, and you know, unlike me, um, they're very much more of uh, a generation that really, really grew up uh, with social media being part of uh, their lives all the time. So, um, so three great guests from the Athletic: Michael, Sean Dugar, Tashawn Reed, and Rhiannon Walker, coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I said at the top, um, I'm pretty psyched. Uh, three great colleagues of mine at The Athletic. Michael Sean Dugar covers the Seahawks for The Athletic, hosts the Seahawks Man to Man podcast. Rhiannon Walker is a feature writer for The Athletic. She used to cover the Washington uh, football team on a day-to-day basis. She's now doing a multitude of different uh, pieces for The Athletic, but obviously can speak to what it's like to cover uh, the beat in the NFL. Sean Reed covers the Las Vegas Raiders for The Athletic, used to cover Florida State football. Uh, he is in the draft city of uh, Las Vegas for this draft, and so it should be interesting to hear from him. Uh, Rhiannon and Tashawn have been on this podcast before. Welcome, everyone, to the Sports Media Podcast. Thanks for having us, man. Thank you for having me, Rich. What up? What up? How are you guys? By the way, that's this this intro I just gave you so much better than the intro that I just did before, which was incredibly shitty, and that we had to cut. So let's take people behind the scenes on me being a terrible host on that crap <laughs> intro where I said I worked for Sports Illustrated still. Really great job by me. I mean, again, The Athletic, really 
great, great, great decision to pay me money to do this nonsense. All right, here we go. I want to start with you, Tashan, since you're in Vegas. What are the two weeks for you leading up to the NFL draft like? And if you want to, within sort of your response, you have obviously, I'd imagine, it's a little bit different because the, the draft is in your host city this year. Yeah, I think for me, um, you know, initially when I transitioned from from covering Florida State to the the Raiders, uh, like the prep work to get ready for the draft wasn't as intense because I was just way more entrenched in, in the college football world and, and more familiar with the prospects that were coming out this year. And um, it's only been a couple of years, but it already made a huge difference in terms of like how unfamiliar I am with prospects now, uh, just, you know, in, in the midst of the grind in NFL season, you kind of just lose track and it's harder to, um, you know, watch every, every big college football game that comes on. And so uh, I would say like really the, the last couple of months, not just a couple of weeks is really like deep diving on who all these guys are, um, especially at positions of need for, for your team, um, which kind of changes throughout free agency. So, uh, you know, unless your team, you know, has like stars at certain positions, you, you end up pretty much looking at, at every single one and getting familiar with them all. And, um, you know, the, the Raiders this year is a unique situation because they, they, they joined the, the fuck them picks crew and, and traded their, their first and second round pick for Devonte Adams. And so, uh, that was hectic in itself just writing about that, but also it, it changed the frame of how I viewed the draft. Um, you know, they don't pick until the third round. And so uh, with those mid, mid to late round picks, you know, it's like fans, they're still interested, but it's not as much, you know, and it's not as intense uh, when you don't have a first round pick. Um, and, you know, that kind of has freed me up to kind of take in more of, of the draft being here in Vegas. Like on on Thursday, you know, barring some kind of crazy trade, I, I might be jinxing myself right now, or trade back in the first round. Like I really won't have all that much to do on Thursday. So um, you know, I, I've never been to a draft in person before. Um, and so it'd be, give me a chance to, you know, actually go down there on the strip and, and see the two stage setup that they have, you know, the red carpet on the Bellagio fountain and then the main stage by Caesars and kind of just take it in, um, and, and experience it. Um, and, you know, I've been in Vegas for a couple of years now and I've kind of seen the, the city gradually come back, um, you know, in the, in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, which is obviously still ongoing, but, um, this is, you know, by far the biggest event that's going to have taken place um, in the city since I moved here and since the pandemic. And they're expecting, you know, in excess of, of 600,000 people to be down there on a the strip. I haven't seen Vegas like that before. And so um, it feels like there's just a lot of excitement in the city and, um, you know, people you know, both coming in as tourists, but also locals here just to kind of see what it looks like. Now I'm curious if you can get the Fuck Them Picks Club in print in the athletic. That that would be an interesting uh, <laughs> attempt. Hopefully somebody makes that. Or Rianne, uh, Tashawn talked about like preparation. And again, I know that you are not covering the the, the Washington at the moment, but you have had to um, sort of go through this in the past. So, you know, what were the weeks uh, leading up for you? I, I imagine obviously it's intense research, but like, does it? Like, are, would you like watch the NFL network and like watch every kind of scouting combine program they have? Are you at the scouting combine? What's when you're covering the beat? Like what are, what are those weeks up uh, leading up to the draft? Like, um, I just want to forewarn anybody who has to listen to me talk that my neighbor has decided today of all days is the day they're going to cut grass, which is why I mute myself right now. So if you hear them, we like external noise on this podcast. So that's fantastic. Fine. There'll be plenty of it then. But for me personally, so like even you mentioned the Jackie Robinson 75 facts, my big thing, one of the things 
I think I'm the best at is doing a lot of research and deep dives into stuff. So I actually enjoy the NFL draft because there's just so much to get into. So you asked me about what do I do for research? Um, there's the Shrine Bowl. There was the East-West game, I believe, if I remember correctly. Um, when we went, to, I'm trying to remember the one where we go down to um, go down to Senior Bowl. I used to enjoy that. And then you were talking about like talking to agents or talking to members of the team and things of that nature. I always love going to Senior Bowl. I also enjoyed going to the Combine as well, too. It's just a lot more relaxed, especially down in Alabama. Um, I'm not afraid to admit that I have staked out and actually, I would, I would just say it stalked. To be frank with you, I have definitely stalked members of Washington staff, um, found out the hotel that they were at, placed myself in a location that was very convenient where I would just happen to come across, happen, of course, happen to come across them. Um, and then at that point, I think I'm a friendly enough person that I can talk to most people. And my first questions are never about information for somebody to give me. Um, Richard, you and I have talked about it. I think the whole thing is kind of parasitic. That's one of my big holdups covering a beat was that I feel like I'm asking you to give me information, give me, give me, give me, but it's not supposed to be a quid pro quo. They don't, I don't give somebody necessarily something else for them to give me something. That's not really exactly how it works, which was again, like my big holdup was feeling like, oh, you're just giving me a lot of this information, whatever the case may be. Now, if there's some insight that I can give that would be helpful to them, sure, whatever. That's not a big deal to me, but you go there, you talk. I had breakfast with people when I was at the Senior Bowl or even at the Combine as well, too. Um, I find myself at a bar with somebody and just, again, like the more normal you are, just having a conversation with someone that shares a similar interest in you, the more likely people are to just like you as a person. And if you need something from them, they're likely to help you. Now, those are the best relationships that I've had are the ones where it's, I just ended up a place where I was eating with somebody or I you know, knew somebody was at this particular place. I told them who I was, explained what I was trying to do. We talked and we just kept in contact. I always keep in contact with people that have helped me in some way, shape, or form, even if it's just to check in like, oh, like you had a kid, congratulations on your kid, or like they maybe they got a degree somewhere along the way, you know, stuff like that. All those things, people are more likely to help you if they don't feel like every time you reach out to them, it's because you want something from them, you know? Um, but then in addition to that, um, I talk to Dane all the time during the uh, whole scout, like this process. It doesn't to me, I don't feel this. I don't feel the need to make mistakes when there are people that know how to do this extremely well, and I have access to them. So Dane Brugler, what he does with the beast, the information that he does leading up to the draft, everything he does with the combine, why would I not use that person or why would I not talk to that person to get better insight or depth or things of that nature? Um, one of the other tactics that I used often was I could see a person maybe that maybe Washington had interest in, but maybe it was just a cool story. So what I would do is if it wasn't, especially not a top pick, but I would talk to those people. I would do stories about those people. Um, and I ended up having a lot of really good relationships with agents because, you know, I did this story on their player. And as you mentioned, I do features. My best talent is talking about people and people liking the way I talk about somebody that they represent or whatever the case may be. And then guess what? Now they're like, if you need anything for anything else moving forward, just let me know. That's a lot of my contacts is that they just like the way I wrote their story. They like the way I handled myself when I was talking to them or doing the interview or whatever the case may be, or just a casual conversation. And we move forward from there. But it's a lot of talking to people that already know information. It's a lot of talking to people on the team side. It's, you know, like, how are you feeling about this career? Or like, what are maybe some of the definitions? Is this like a real thing? Or is this just noise? Whatever the case may be. Um, and only people that I really trust, there's no, I, I'm more of a quality over quantity person. So I'm good with the people that I have that have always looked out for me and never steered me wrong. Um, that kind of stuff, that was always very helpful for me in the lead up to the draft. So that, that, that was my best, that's my best bit of advice. And I mean, even um, if you'd like a story to highlight the story I did on Chase Young, when it was very obvious, he's going to be the number two pick for Washington. Um, there were so many stories about Chase Young because he has been such a star since he was at the back of the school that's in the DC area. 
um, WCAC school where he went to high school and then going to Ohio State, coming back to Washington, there was all these different stories about this player. But one of the things I focused on was something people weren't talking about, which was his two years he spent at St. Vincent Pilate. Like everybody knows he went to the math. There's plenty of stories about that. There's plenty of stories about Ohio State, but Nobody was talking about, well, what happened those two years when he was at St. Vincent Pilate that led him to getting to DeMatha that started this whole track to stardom. That story, Dago near got to be a home run. I'm really proud of that one in particular. And that helped out a lot. I got to know his trainer. I got to know, and matter of fact, in that Under Armour commercial you see, his trainer is actually in the video as well, too. Um, one of his former coaches that still helps train him to this day, like, those are people that I still keep in contact with that very much have direct access to him. I don't mind sharing those tidbits because I don't cover the team anymore. So those people were all very helpful when I needed something or if I had to ask questions or whatever the case may be. But that's really a good way to do that is you write a story about someone that other people aren't writing about. And next thing you know, like people want to work on you because that shows that you're thinking outside the box. That shows that you know how to do some research. That also shows you know how to work hard as well, too, because I got all six of the people I wanted to talk for that story. And I still have all their contact information. Again, like if I need something, I just talk to them. But that's how I work the NFL draft on my end. Uh, just, just so the uh, people listening to it, Dave Brugler is the uh, he's the athletics like um, draft expert in the same way like uh, Todd McShay, Mel Kiper Jr., et cetera, would be the people at ESPN. All right, Mike, I want to get to you and um, and let's make it specific to this year because you ha- you particularly have an interesting team when it comes to the draft. The Seahawks have eight picks. In the 2022 NFL Draft, four of those picks are within the top 72 selections. You wrote a great piece uh, this month, basically on the draft, the Seahawks draft, uh, ten years ago, which pretty much changed the um, the fortunes of that franchise. That was the Russell Wilson and Bobby Wagner draft. So for you, um, I will even extend it more. Like, what's the last month been like for you in terms of reporting and how you've approached this? Because you really have one of, I, I would say, uh, one of the most important teams in this year's draft, if honestly not the most important team, given what they're hoping this draft does for them. Uh, part of the last like month or so has been like pretending I've been watching all of the top quarterbacks for the past like year and a half. Uh, you know, pretending I'm like some Desmond Ritter expert or Malik Willis or that I know about Kenny Pickett's hand size and all that. Cause I wasn't paying attention really until they, until they traded Russ and like on like March 8th or something like that. So it's been a lot of catch up. Uh, and the other half, to be honest, has just been explaining to people what the hell the Seahawks are doing and not just like people on Twitter or like subscribers or readers or people who listen to the podcast. It's like, if I go out in the street, go to my mom's house for dinner, she'd be like, yo, so why do we trade Russ? Or, you know, I, I play flag football on the weekends. I'll pull up to the game and they'll be like, Hey, yo, Mike, What's up? Why we cut Bobby? You know, what are we doing? Are we going to draft a quarterback? Are we going to start Drew Locke? Like, it's just, I don't understand the vision, uh, but I'm like tasked with explaining the vision to everyone else, whether in writing or on the podcast uh, or just, like I said, just out in the street here in Seattle. Everyone's kind of trying to figure out what exactly are these guys doing? Um, Because in addition to cutting Bobby Wagner and trading Russell Wilson at a time when Teams are giving up draft capital for the right to pay Carson Wentz $28 million. Like the rush trade is just kind of illogical. But if you take even a step further back into it, part of the rationale for trading Jamal Adams, at least according to general manager John Snyder, was that there was just a lot of uncertainty about the ability to evaluate draft prospects due to COVID. Remember, they traded Jamal in July 2020. At that time, I don't even think we knew if there would be a college football season. So that's John's reasoning, right? Kind of devalued the next few years of the draft uh, in the name of acquiring a proven player, which is fine. 
until you then give up your franchise quarterback for the picks in the same draft that you devalued, you know, just recently. So all the logic that they've used just keeps falling on itself, right? They tell us they want to win now. Well, then you trade your franchise quarterback. Uh, you tell us the, the, the picks don't matter. Well, then you trade your quarterback for picks, largely, and, and Drew Locke. There's just so many hypocrisies in all the front office logic. And I'm basically asked to ask for it, right? Because I'm more accessible than John Schneider. I'm more accessible than Pete Carroll. You know, they can't just, fans can't just tweet them or comment on something. I mean, you can tweet them, I guess, but it won't work. It's, you're much more likely to get a response from me. So like the last six, eight weeks or whatever has been a trying to work the phones and get a feel for what these guys are doing and then be able to articulate that to my audience without like blowing up who my sources are um, and like trying not to be all full doom and gloom about it as well, which I come across as sometimes admittedly, because again, what the hell are these guys doing? You know, I can't really tell. So it's hard to explain it to everyone else. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Mike, I'm going to stick with you, and then uh, we'll go to Sean, and then Rhiannon after that. What's what was always interesting to me in uh, you know most of my certainly most of my recent writing about the NFL draft, and let's say the last 10, 15 years, has been about the television coverage of it. Um, uh, way back in the day when I was around your guys' age, I, I did help out with some NFL draft coverage at Sports Illustrated, but I, you know I never really covered this the way you guys covered it. But I was always sort of fascinated by like the peop- the reporters who were able to get the pick correct or at least close to the pick and then there were other people on beats who were totally wrong and like it always made me think like like is there any truthfulness when it comes to the executives you talk to because the reality is there's no benefit to them telling reporters the truth i mean you know it's a cloak and dagger game they don't want other teams to know who they're um, thinking the reality is they probably want misinformation or disinformation out there because it would strategically help them. So, Mike, I'll start with you. Like, like, where's your truthful meter when you're talking to like executives of the Seahawks, and and how do you navigate when people might want to, I don't know, in theory, use you right to just sort of put something out there that might not necessarily be true. That's what sort of makes the draft really tricky. Is you know what I mean? Like, who's telling the truth and and who's bullshitting? Well, the, the fun part for the Seahawks is, or at least on my end, is that the Seahawks were really successful, you know, 2012, 13, 14 or whatever. So they kept losing coaches, losing scouts, losing front office people, and they kept going other places, you know, not even just like two other teams. Like, um, for example, Jim Nagy that runs a senior bowl used to work for the Seahawks, right? And he's still really close with those guys. And there's just like other guys like that, um, or even a Scott McLuhan who does uh, used to be exec all over the place. Um, who used to be close with those guys. There's just so many people 
um, Ed Dodds, I forget where he's at now, maybe Indy. Um, so many people that have left that if they know something, you know, it, it, they're not like, they're less likely to lie because they don't really have anything to lose. You know, it's not like if I ask John Schneider, if I see him at the bar, like, hey, yo, yo, you going to draft Kenny Pickett? Well, of course he's going to lie. Yeah, but other people who are like, it's almost like these like outside people who are still plugged in have been really helpful, um, at least in previous years, not so much recently. So that, that's been kind of nice. Uh, but even then, the Seahawks just in general, from coaches to trainers to whoever, they're really just bad liars, to be honest. That's why general manager John Snatter doesn't talk very often, like four or five times a year. That boy gets in front of a microphone and just, it's like he got the little truth serum stuff from Harry Potter or something. He just can't lie. His eyes always tell the truth, body language, he like, he fidgets a little bit when you're onto something. Like you could just read that dude like pretty easily. Um, so whenever he's in front of a microphone, whether it's at the owner's meetings, the combine, his pre-draft news conference, like you can get to that guy. Pete Carroll can lie his ass off, you know, to, to his credit. Um, so he's a little tougher to read. Um, but even so like behind the scenes, it's actually pretty easy for me to tell him people are telling the truth. Really easy for me to read John. Um, which is why he speaks so rarely. For an example, I got, what pick did I get right? I got a pick right in 2019, like their first pick. Uh, LJ Collier in 2019, after trading Frank Clark, I was like, oh, I can figure this out. Like, And to the point where it wasn't just like, oh, something I tweeted a speculation, like I wrote it. Like I did a mock and I was like, guys, they're gonna take LJ Collier with whatever pick and boom. So I didn't think, I didn't project him in the first round, but I just knew like, they like this guy based on everything all the people the million people i've talked to so yeah like i'm kind of lucky and the seahawks don't have a lot of people who do talk but the people who do talk like really just can't lie that well Tashawn, i want to go to you uh you know the raiders obviously have had massive changes um in uh at least at the top of the front office uh, uh pie chart with uh, a new general manager obviously i think everybody knows the um, the coaching situation of them post gruden so I'll, I'll ask you like is it uh, how challenging is it to get what you consider accurate information regarding what the Raiders might be thinking in this draft? It's actually probably easier than it's been my first two years on the beat, just because I started covering the Raiders in 2020. So the first pandemic year and um, I started right before the draft. Um, and so I didn't have the opportunity. I mean, there wasn't a com or there was a combine that year, but I didn't have, have the opportunity to go to it, you know, as a Raiders beat reporter. Um, and then that, you know, obviously the whole season, everything was virtual. So it was harder to get to know people, um, whether that was players, coaches, front office members. Um, and then the next year, you know, we didn't have a combine. And so I didn't have that opportunity to really get that informal, you know, access to people that, that Rhiannon was talking about earlier. Um, and so this was the first year that I had a normal draft cycle you know i was able to i mean the, the east west shrine bowl was here in vegas um so i you know it was easy for me to go out there but i also went to the combine and spent the entire week out there and um it's always interesting when you have a new staff um a, a new you know gm and a new head coach and assistants and scouts and things of that nature because you know they're kind of trying to fill out their footing um and, and you know get to know the media depending on how cooperative they, they want to be with the media or not but you know, unless you have some kind of previous relationship from something else or some other team you covered, um, there's it, always a filling out process, um, you know, when it comes to that and and building a relationship with those people. And, um, you know, you're kind of like sim simultaneously doing that filling out process while also it's like, you know, I mean, it's February, you know, draft season is here. We got to start, you know, getting answers to these questions. And so you're like both trying to get to know them, but also trying to get insight on some of the things you need to know. 
Um, and, you know, so I would say, you know, compared to my first two years, it's easier just because there's just way more uh, opportunity to, to get that in-person access with people. Um, you know, and, and the guard isn't up as much. There's, there's not as much of a physical barrier. Uh, you know, you, you're still not getting, you know, I, I don't know who they're drafting 86 overall or, or who they're targeting or, or things like that in particular. So there's a, a level of, you know, mystery to it still. But um, I, I found just in general when, when talking to, um, you know, whether it's scouts or executives or, or coaches about the draft, um, the, the best approach you really have as a beat writer is, um, you know, kind of asking them maybe not about a specific guy, but maybe a prototype of a player. Maybe, you know, how do they feel about, you know, offensive linemen that have all the physical traits, but they're really raw or, you know, receivers that are really fast, but may not be able to run routes all that well or, you know, different things like that. So you can get get a sense of how they view different archetypes of players. And so when you're considering which prospects you may take, uh, or they may take, um, you know, you can get an idea of, does this guy fit their vision? Does he fit what they look for at that position? Just based on who the roster, you know, who they've signed in free agency, does that align with, with, with the moves that they've done so far? And so it's more about reading the tea leaves, honestly, when it, when it comes to that exchange of information, um, whether it's somebody in the front office, front office or a coaching staff, more so than it is, you know, them, they're never going to tell you, yeah, we're, we're drafting so-and-so at this pick. Part of it is really because they don't know who's going to be available for sure, unless you have like the number one overall pick or something like that. And so even on their end, they're, they're only guess, you know, it's more of a educated estimate than it is, you know, a confirmation of what they're going to do. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, Rhiannon, I think, uh, you know, like most sane and reasonable people, I'm conditioned not to believe anything Dan Snyder says and, anyone associated with him. So I, I can't even imagine what it would be like. I, I mean, you, you've chronicled that team away from the draft when it comes to believability or not. Did that filter down when it came to the draft? I mean, did you find that you were able to get some semblance of an accurate roadmap when it came to who Washington was thinking about? Or does the, uh, I'll use the catch-all phrase, dysfunction, at the top on everything else, float down to when it comes to the draft info too. Bold of you to think that Dan Snyder would, and of course I'm saying this sarcastically, grace us with his presence. The only time I was ever in a room with Dan Snyder, that's not true, but the only time he spoke, and this was minimal, was when he introduced Ron Rivera in 2020. That's the only time we have ever heard Dan Snyder talk to the media in any capacity. And of course, if you remember, he said happy Thanksgiving to all of us in early January. So, you know, really holiday cheer. Um, I also want to say to Mike, you know, John Snyder is probably going to listen to this podcast. He's like, oh, I'm easy to read now. I got you in the future, Mike. I um, <laughs> I can't, I can't Mike, wait. Mike, You've Mike given John the Snyder secret away. not listening to this podcast. <laughs> I, um, but in terms of the dysfunction, I'll say this. Ron Rivera and his crew run a tight ship. So 2021, I would say that it was pretty, it, it, I don't want to say like it was like, you know, Fort Knox or anything like that. It wasn't that. It's just that it wasn't chaotic, if that makes sense. With Jay Gruden, Bruce Allen, I hope I don't even have to say it, but yeah, it was like going to the circus, if you want me to be completely frank. That was the draft where they picked Dwayne Haskins, even though there were the football side people that didn't want to do that. And I'll be frank with you, I got that pick wrong initially because I said they were going to pick Montez Sweat that draft, but they took Dwayne Haskins with the first pick. But then I got I was end up being right because they came back into the first into the first quarter or excuse me, the first round to take Montez Sweat. So that one was actually that was interesting. And people remember that was an appeasal of the football side because I mean you've seen what Montez Sweat has done for them on the football side and everything else like that. There were some questions about Dwayne Haskins 
readiness for the NFL at the time that he was drafted. So, I mean, it was a good story bringing home the hometown kid, everything else like that. It was good for that reason. But just in terms of like getting him on the field, getting him prepped and stuff like that. And again, Jay Gruden being your coach, it is what it is. Um, but in terms of Ron Rivera and his staff, I'll say this just like to throw out, I know the question is about the team side of it, but I actually found a lot of success just talking to the players that kind of fit. Basically when the team people talked about like what the mold was for a player that they liked, I could kind of look and again, like, cross check it with Dane or talk to other people, whatever the case may be. But the best way for me, I found to kind of get a sense of like who teams liked was talking to players. And again, going back to those agents that I had made those connections with, because again, they get was it 30 visits or whatever the case may be during the draft process, et cetera, et cetera. And so I could go and they, I mean, they represent more than one player and kind of get a sense of like, well, have any of your guys like gone to DC? Um, have any of them had some callbacks? Like, you know, any scene, like any serious interest. I don't, the agents have the incentive to tell me that their guy is getting looked at by the team because they want to drive up the interest, right? To to Sean and Mike's point, the team has no reason to tell us anything because it makes no sense for them to give that kind of stuff away. So, I mean, I go to the side that has more of the incentive to talk about it and also to prove like, yeah, like, you know, we had this conversation or like, you know, he had this call back, whatever the case may be, like he did this Zoom call, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That was where I found the most success personally was just talking to the player and the agent side of it because they have more of the incentive to tell me that information versus the team people. Now, I will say this. One of the things I respected about the team people that I got to work with is that if I was spot on, if I was in the ballpark, maybe they wouldn't say I was outright correct, but they would tell me I was on the right path. though. Um, so there were a few players that when they got drafted, it was like, okay, yeah, like I saw that coming. Like, for instance, Cameron Cheeseman, the team did a long snapper last year. There was the one from Alabama and there was Cameron Cheeseman. I was just like, well, depending on who goes where, whatever the case may be, I know it's going to be one of the two of them type of situations. So, I mean, that one was easy. Or like Antonio Gandy-Golden, it made sense for what the team needed to have like a big body wide receiver, somebody that maybe they could work on, whatever the case may be. He was a fourth round pick. <clears throat> Sadiq Charles um, out of LSU, similar idea. But just once I get enough tidbits here and there, um, I can go to the agent side and ask them some questions about like, has this person been seen by this team? And then I could go back to the team side and say, I'm hearing that, you know, y'all are bringing this person in or like you may have some interest in this player da, 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 to get a little bit more clarity there. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. I want to, uh, let's start with Tashawn here. Uh, and then, but all, all of you guys, uh, I want to answer it, want to answer this. But I want to start with um, you, Tashawn, because like the Raiders are, and I mean, I, I guess all of your teams are quote unquote national teams. I mean, it's not like any of you guys are covering the Jaguars, but the, the Raiders are really like, and maybe this is sort of playing a little bit into the hist- history of the Raiders, but the, I, I, I grew up in New York and like, I knew Raiders fans. Like, it's just like, it's a national team to me. Um, even if they haven't been as successful as they were obviously back in the, you know, the Madden or the, the 80, 80s days. Um, and so Tashana, do you have a sense of like what readers want when it comes to draft coverage? My guess is the, the obvious short answer is everything, but you know, you can't work 24 hours a day, seven days a week. 
So in from your perspective, at least in terms of your working at the athletic covering this team, like what do they want from you over the course of this month when it comes to drafts coverage? Yeah, I would say our I think our readership at the athletic is unique and just that I mean, for one, they're they're paying, you know, to read our information. And so just by by nature of that, they tend to be more of the diehard type of fan than the the casual fan that's just a fan because they're their family is or, or something of that nature. So they, they tend to want the, the nitty gritty on the, on the football side. Um, you know, like I said before, this year in particular, like it's a little bit different because they don't have those high round draft picks and the team has, you know, made major moves elsewhere. You know, the Adams trade, signing Chandler Jones, uh, you know, re-signing Max Crosby and Derek Carr. And so, uh, you know, a lot of the focus from the fans, honestly, even with the draft being here, has been on, you know, the current makeup of the roster and more big picture stuff of, you know, since they made the playoffs last year, you know, can they really compete in the AFC West? Can they advance in the playoffs? You know, do they have a shot to make a Super Bowl run? And so the draft has kind of taken a step back. But even within that, you know, you know the, the, the more so what they want to know from a basic sense is, is I think it starts with team needs. Um, you know, just sort of what holes are on the roster, you know, you know, more so your opinion of it than, you know, the, the team, because the team isn't going to, you know, shit on various players throughout their roster or say, well, hey, we don't have any receivers or things like that. But just, you know, based on your knowledge, you know, they trust you. You've been covering the team for X amount of years. Um, so they, they trust you to identify those needs. Um, you know, the salary cap situation, you know, after they sign their draft picks, will they still have some more money to play around with? Um, and then, you know, sort of in, in the range that they're playing with. So the Raiders, like I said, is mid to late round picks, uh, you know, based off of what you believe their needs are, what are some prospects that would fit their scheme, fill those needs, and then maybe have some some long-term upside in terms of being, you know, starters or significant contributors. And so um, it's really just sort of setting the table for the draft. Like they, they aren't so much, like if you do have some specific information on a prospect um, that they're targeting or they have a top 30 visit or they've really been, you know, talking to this person a lot, they, they want to know that too. But it's more so about setting the table and giving them an idea of what could possibly be on, um, you know, be on the board for draft night. Because like I said earlier, you know, so much of it is dictated by, you know, what other teams do and who they take and what trades happen and things of that nature that part of it is kind of out of the Raiders' hands. So more so than predicting what's going to happen. Like we do mock drafts and uh, we make predictions before the draft and stuff like that. And then fans enjoy that stuff, but they more so want, want you to create, you know, the base of their knowledge, you know, going into the draft. And so that, you know, whoever they take at pick, you know, number 164 um, on the last day of the draft, they might have an idea of who that guy is instead of rushing to Google and trying to have the internet f- f- figure it out for them. Mike, um, it's a little different uh, for you in that, um, well, again, the short answer is, you know, readers want everything. I, I mean, you could certainly correct me if I'm wrong. You're the expert here. But I feel like specifically, like from you, um, people really want to know, like, are the Seahawks interested in getting a quarterback in this draft? And if so, who are the likely quarterbacks that could be around when they're drafting? So I feel like it's like you got a couple of challenges on this one in that you got to provide everything like Deshaun said, like, you know, strengths and weaknesses, who might be out there, who might not be out there. But like the quarterback position is just unique in this league. And, um, you know, there, there's got to be an insatiable appetite for Seahawks fans when it comes to that position. So how have you had to navigate like what readers want this year, knowing I'm sure that there's, there must be a lot of interest in 
the prospect of, of getting a, a quarterback in this draft. You know, what's really tricky, and I would guess that this probably applies to everybody with draft coverage lately, is that the fans are not, they're not, we're not the gatekeepers of the information. You know, it's kind of evolved. Like if you, if you can't get something at The Athletic, you can probably read about that prospect on Pro Football Focus or The Ringer or the Draft Network or ESPN or whatever. There's just so many outlets. And then there's people doing like YouTube channels, breaking down prospects. Like that's some of the, the debates or like some of the stuff that I get into with fans is more like, hey, Mike, I actually like this twitchiness or this other stuff. And I'm like, but what do you know about edge rusher bends, bro? Like, what are you talking about? But like, that's what they, they can feel like that, you know, after, you know, digesting all of this other content. So you're almost like confirm your, it becomes more of like a debate instead of like, Mike, tell me about the edge rushers in this class. It's more like, all right, Mike, I know about the edge rushers already because I read such and such. Tell me which ones you like and we can argue about it. it it's kind of been interesting the last like year or two um, with like the influx of draft coverage is like all all over the place. Um, but specifically with your part about the quarterbacks. Yeah, it's it's been it's not only been like, Mike, tell me about which quarterbacks are good and why and which ones you think fit and what are you hearing? The other part is like it's been, in Seattle, it's become like a debate of like value, you know, because there's a narrative built. It's like, Mike, the quarterbacks aren't that good in this class. Maybe we should just roll out Drew Locke, stink, and then go get Bryce Young or something next year. Or like, don't waste a pick on Malik Willis, Mike. Let's just, this class stinks. So instead of doing that, at taking Malik at nine or whatever, Desmond Ritter, Kenny Pickett, less, less weight. You know, so not only is it a debate of like, well, can Desmond, can Desmond Ritter throw over the middle where Russell Wilson wouldn't? You know, can Malik Willis be the younger version of Russ with his legs? Uh, can Sam Howell throw the deep ball like, like Russ if they take him? It's that. And then the next step is like, arguing okay wait is it even worth that from positional value standpoint um then it's like if not okay well how good is Geno smith how good is drew Locke? how good are the quarterbacks supposed to be in 2023 um but i i feel like anybody who thought that their team would be taking the oklahoma kid like spencer rattler or whatever any anybody who thought their team would be taking him this time last year will probably warn you against just expecting the next year's crop to to be better so like on top of the analysis of the guys, you know, on top of like going through back channels to get some Malik Willis tape or hitting up some people overseas to get Desmond Ritter film. Like on top of watching that, analyzing that, having that, talking to Dane, talking to the homie Jordan Reed at ESPN, uh, another draft analyst. Like there's it's like another step further now. It's almost like fans are getting smarter. So it like my articles at least have become more of like a dialogue. Uh, with the fans like i'll say i like desmond ritter and they'll tell me all these reasons why they don't and then why they like matt corral citing all of these advanced numbers that they got from some other site that are actually valid like it's not even like no stupid shit uh, so like my, my whole draft coverage has like turned lately because of how much information like the readers have Rihanna, i want to switch to sort of the all-consuming nature of uh of being a beat writer uh but let's sort of just like present some caveats so like you know, everybody listening knows, like, we understand, like, you know, these are first world problems as a general rule. Um, it's a very, very grinding beat, a grinding life, no matter the sport. I do think covering the NFL presents you with a much better lifestyle than covering baseball. I, I quite frankly, the baseball B writers that I know, I don't know how they do it. I just, I don't honestly know how you have a life away from that beat, how you have a relationship away from that beat. It just seems inconceivable to me if you're covering 162 games, you know, 81 on the road. But the NFL, at least, it's like 
you know, eight home games, eight road games. Or I take that back. It's whatever. Nine road games or eight, nine home games. Um, the games are on Sunday. You know, there there is an off day during the week. A lot of times you can live near the team facility. So while it's a lot of work, it's sort of doable. That said, like in order to be great or I think even good, and I think all of you guys sort of fit into that, like you have to be in many ways obsessed by it. Like if you're not, and if you're not always on, like you just, you can't do it at the level I think internally you want to do. But it does, I think, create like burnout. It creates, I don't know, it, it, it creates a little bit of a bubble where you're just, this whole world just becomes too all-consuming and you're not developing as a person outside of that. Again, I know you are not doing it now on a day-to-day basis, but you can certainly speak to it because you had a very high profile and high pressure beat in Washington. But um, what is it like to be an NFL beat writer in terms of the the all-consuming nature of it. And I also want to obviously ask Deshaun and Mike this because they're they're in the middle of it. But let's start with you, Rihanna. You know what? I would say it was a learning process. And I will say that I was fortunate to have the mentors around me that helped me that they did because I hadn't covered a beat mm, since my sophomore year of college. And it's not that you can't understand the general mechanics of it, but it's really the time commitment element that you have to get used to, basically. Um, so for me, I initially, when I started doing beat reporting, I thought of it the way that I thought of my feature writing work, which is that if you get the work done, you're done with it, basically. So for instance, I knew during the week that I would have an extremely open locker room on Sundays after the game. That's when all the players would be there. Monday, a lot of the players, especially if they won, they would be there as well, too. Wednesday was a big day because quarterback talks, coordinator talks, um, et cetera, et cetera. And so my thought was, okay, get the work, like get as much of the stuff you can get done, done at the beginning of the week so that you're free for whatever else you need to do. But to be frank with you, that's not how you become a successful beat reporter. That's just not the way it goes because the players pay attention to if you're in the locker room, they're not necessarily seeing that like you did do all the stories that you needed to do for the week, right? They're not maybe checking for that kind of stuff. They're just, I, they're just looking with their eyes like, okay, this person is here Sunday, Monday, Wednesday. It's just like, but they don't see like, oh, like I did the stuff I need to do for Thursday and Friday. The part of being a good beat reporter is that you just talk, like I said, you, when I got comfortable and I felt like I got better at my job was when I realized that it's a lot of just having human interactions with people. And that's the thing that I'm the most proud of from the time that I did the three and a half years being a beat reporter is that I got to know people. People felt comfortable telling me information or a few people felt comfortable pulling me aside. Um, and if they felt like I was maybe going in the wrong direction, correcting course, whatever the case may be, um, people felt comfortable telling me things that they didn't tell other reporters. And that's where I felt like I made the biggest strides because I'll be frank, I wasn't the biggest newsbreaker, nor was I the biggest um, person in terms like in terms of game stories, stuff like that. But I frankly think that my feature stories outside of one other person on the Washington beat would go toe to toe with anybody because people felt comfortable with me. That's the thing. Like I said, multiple times, I'm the most proud of, um, would I have liked to have broken more news? Sure. The things I broke news on, I'm very proud about that. Like Jennifer King, Nat- Natalia Dorentes, everything that happened with the sexual harassment stuff. And for those who don't know, like to actually be in the midst of that stuff, I have no, like I'm a competitive person. I talked to the person that harassed me because I wanted to get that story done. I have no issue with that. So, for those who don't know that little tidbit of backstory, that's how competitive I am about stuff. And even when I said, like, I staked out the team hotel, like to be good at it requires that kind of stuff. It means you have to be in the locker room pretty much every single day that it's open, even if you don't have a story to do. So for me, that was driving 50 minutes out of my way, even though I had nothing to write that day. It's literally just for the FaceTime, just to shoot the breeze and things of that nature. Um, 
because people get to know you as much as you get to know them. And that stuff leads to stories down the line. That stuff also leads to seeing stuff. That's the reason that I saw when Alex Smith started to recover from his compound fracture and everything that happened with his leg. It's because I was walking around that day and I happened to see him out in the field throwing to one of the um, assistants on, on the team. That's all that was that day is that I stayed behind a little bit longer than everybody else. He happened to be out there. I walked by and it's fair game. I didn't see anything in a place I wasn't supposed to see it. It's the place I naturally would have walked by. Or when Darius Geis was returning from his ACL tear, same deal is that they were out in the practice field, which goes by the direction that I walk. And that's how I ended up seeing that tidbit of information right there. Or sometimes I would see people in the parking lot. They would stop me as I was going to my car. We would talk or whatever the case. That stuff always happens. So to be good at your job just means to be present, just to be there. Because what is the what is the whole thing about luck? It's opportunity when opportunity meets chance or preparation, whatever the case may be. That's what that is, is that I'm in the right place at the right time to receive something like that in the first place. Um, but if you want to be great at this job, some stuff that I would say other coworkers do that I wasn't as into is that they'll follow people on social media and stuff like that. That's their whole social media feed is feeding uh, is, um, you know, paying attention to these players, paying attention to their wives, paying attention to their kids, all this stuff like that. To me, that seems invasive. I wasn't personally willing to do that. I wasn't, I'll be fair. Um, but the other stuff, like just like anything that I could do where I could talk with them, whatever the case may be, if I needed a number, I could get the number. If I needed to talk to an agent, I talked to the agent, whatever the case may be. Like I have one agent down in Texas that I meet with every single time I'm in Dallas, even though I don't cover the team, like we still meet up with each other. Um, and within that, having those personal conversations, not just about what he does, but also he'd ask me about my life. It's about opening up as much as anything else. I had one person who reached out to me because I shared my take on J. Cole. I didn't know he was a J. Cole fan, but I actually like J. Cole too. So we ended up talking about that and that helped develop my relationship. You have to be open to sharing parts of yourself. Sometimes you have to pester people as well too, um, or catch people at the right time. I would say my best success was when I got to talk to people in person, texting people, calling people, pestering people, not my strength. It just isn't. Um, but being genuine with people, making people feel comfortable, pretty good at it. That's why I'm a feature writer because I'm really good at that particular element of this job. But that's what it takes to be good. If you're willing to follow people, their families, if you're willing to go into the stands and like make sure that you're talking to players, family members every single time you see them and things of that nature, um, all that stuff like that. Like I have other coworkers who are posting like, you know, workout videos like, you know, Mike just did that just a second ago with Chris Carson. I don't know if you follow Chris Carson on Instagram or not, but I know that you saw it and you posted it on Twitter because people are interested in that kind of stuff. But that's the stuff that makes people beyond good at whatever it is that they're doing i mean to sean i think what like you were when you first got on the beat you didn't have the access that the rest of us did but you sent out emails to every one of these agents and stuff like that and whoever got back to you is a whoever got back to you but that's what it takes like can you imagine sending an email to every single agent most people are not willing to do that but that's the difference between a good reporter or even an okay reporter to a good reporter to a great reporter that's what it takes sometimes. It's just sending out that introductory email, letting them know like, hey, I'm here to do business. I'm here to work hard. I'm here to do this, that, and a third. And some people look at that and they'll say, this is obnoxious, whatever the case may be. But other people are like, you know what? I respect your hustle because how else are you going to get to meet me? He didn't get to go to the combine. He didn't get to go to the senior bowl or stuff like that. But you find other ways to meet people and stuff like that. Shoot, I'll DM people. I'll be on Twitter with people or other stuff like that if I absolutely have to. But those are the things that maybe people don't consider. So like, if you're not comfortable with that kind of stuff that's a tough job to have but if you can find a way to do those things there's success to be had especially if like you're a person that people generally like there's a lot of success that can be had so that was that's what it takes to be a beat reporter and you're talking about the away games like 
and I'm sorry this is a long-winded answer, but when it's away games, that means like my Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and possibly my Mondays are also gone too, depending on where I'm traveling to. Like Green Bay is a tough place to travel to. I usually don't leave out until the next day when it comes to Green Bay or some of the other smaller cities because there's no flights out late that night on Sunday, whatever the case may be. Um, I've missed Thanksgiving with my family several times going down to Dallas. That's a part of the job as well, too, for people that don't know. Um, holidays, like, you know what? You may get a holiday, you maybe you won't. Like, Washington loved to do, like, news announcements, like, last year with the Ryan Fitzpatrick signing. That was at 11.59 at night. Um, <laughs> when they when they brought in some of these other players, they brought William Jackson, I think that one was at 10 o'clock at night. Um, they, they, you can get a news announcement at any point, any time, and it can blow your entire day up. That's what it takes. And you have to stop what you're doing to do that thing. And it is what it is. Um, because that's what you sign up for. So that's, it's fun. There's lots of travel that goes into it. There's a lot of different things you get to see. If you have friends that work in the industry, you get to see them as well too. But the actual job that you're being paid to do, all that other stuff that I just mentioned is a huge part of it. So there's fun to be had, but don't forget about the real work, the real grind and everything else like that. Or even the news team to Sean and Mike could speak to that a lot more, but they will hit you up anytime, any place, multiple times a day. If they absolutely feel like they got to, and guess what? You got to address it at that time. Uh, Mike, I'm going to go to you. Um, Rhiannon obviously sort of brought up a lot of, uh, a lot of facets and a lot of navigating on this job. It would be a good time to mention here that, uh, in terms of the Pro Football Writers of America, uh, Mike and Tashawn are finalists for the Therese Paler Emerging Writer Award. So obviously these are um, these are two guys who are uh, who've earned the respect of their their peers. But Mike, you know you can go anywhere you want with this, but uh, Rihanna went to a lot of different places just about the uh, you know the challenges of covering an NFL beat in 2022. Oof, man, there's a lot of them. Um, the one that's most uh, on my that's on my mind the most is just like where media has gone. Like it's really tough to for people I think to distinguish who's who and what the roles of each piece of the media are. Like I feel like you know we get like, we as in like a local beat writer gets lumped in with like Schefter, and then we and the, who also gets lumped in with like Skip Bayless or Stephen A. Smith. It's just like, guys, we are even Colin Cowherd. He talks a lot about Seattle. So he's probably more instructive in this example. Like that's, we are all, we all have very different functions in the sports media landscape. But if like a player just sees like a clip of something is like, oh, the media has this narrative. Right. And then he has to do a zoom later that day after practice. Now he's responding to like some five minute rant from Cowherd that I had nothing to do with. Right. You know, and I think. And it's uh, not to pick on Cowherd, but I just think he's like, like again, he talks a lot about Russell in, Se in Seattle. So like that part has been really frustrating lately um, just because like we are so different. Like even even the difference in like a national guy. You know, I remember one time Seth Wickersham came to Seattle and like a really explosive piece about how like the guys don't like Russ and they think he's coddled by Pete Carroll and defensive guys got beef with him, mostly Richard Sherman. Like it was all like accurate stuff, but like Seth came wrote it and then it dropped and then Seth was probably back home wherever the hell he lives right and then we all had to like talk to Pete the next day and Michael Bennett and Sherm and Russ all of, uh, quizzing them on like a story that we didn't write narrative we didn't drive not to say that he did a bad job it's just an example of like a narrative was created and then we got to answer for that or like the difference between a TV person and a, and a local market versus a radio person versus a print person we all have very really different functions radio guys get on there and talk shit they make jokes. They'll call players names. 
do stuff that like I won't dare do on my podcast. Why? Because I got to see these cats in the locker room. There ain't no security in there. And they all bigger than me. That's like I watch my mouth. Right. Like it's 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 way different. The functions are all different. But like if a radio guy says something crazy about Chris Carson and Chris Carson's mom catch wind of it and just send it to Chris. Now he's just mad at the media today. <laughs> and that's all of us. You know, so I think the distinct like the inability to like easily distinguish has been just so tough to navigate lately. I've like been on this beat for a little bit. So it's a little easier for me, but just I feel like in general, people can have that issue. And that's before you factor in people who got like teen blogs, you know, who just got Wi-Fi, a ring light and, you know, a computer. And then they can write about the same stuff. They can watch the press conferences on YouTube, type them up, watch the, you know, find a way to get the film, do all the same stuff that that you're kind of doing without the access and then put those articles out. You know, and then they're counted as media, too, even though it's just some dude with a blog like who loves the dolphins or something. Um, and it just kind of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like when you water down something like, uh, anyway, I'll just use watered down. The whole market's kind of like water, watered down in terms of NFL coverage. So when you're a local person there every day, grinding, trying to build sources and no one can tell whether like the Seattle local media is different than whatever the hell, um, somebody said on NFL live the day before, like that's really annoying. And that's tough to, tough to like break from and that's before you even get that's just doing your job that's not even when you factor in trying to do it well right like all right i'm on the ground every day want to do this like feature but boom then like somebody from si or something snatches it from me you know because they got a bigger platform or like i've been grinding to get this news story forever and then boom schefter's got it or rapaport's got it you know like that's like trying to break news as a local person is a shit show you know, so there's all these just uh, those two things I think are most important. Me and Tashawn talk about this all the time. Like, well, trying to get these sources on a contract or a trade is just, oh, my God, it's ridiculous. You could be in with the agent, the player, the trainer, his mama, his childhood friend, and then Schefter will scoop you in a matter of seconds. Right. It'll fall in his lap. Uh, so, like, th- those two things come to mind as the most difficult, I think, right now is just yeah, getting people, players, coaches, fans to distinguish between who is actually media and what we do. And then just like trying to just climb the ladder with breaking news when the game's damn near rigged uh, because of all the national guys. Uh, yeah. So, two things there. Those are great, great, great points. One, for B reporters like yourself, it's literally like you're in a rowboat and Schefter and company, they're on a cruise ship. And that's the race. Like they have so many advantages to you, including getting gifted by either, you know, the GM coach or some executive or the league office, by the way, who leaks all the time uh, to national places. These are at the end of the day, rights holders, they're partners with these guys. So yeah, whenever a local person gets a scoop, like over a national person, I'm like, that's beyond awesome. And you have no idea how hard it is. The second one, and then Tashan, uh, you could certainly follow up with Mike, that I just want to point out, because it's always like a fever pitch dream of mine. It'll never happen. Um, I support, obviously, access to reporters uh, to the nth degree. But, and here's my but, when an asshole like Skip Bayless or someone like that, like shit talks somebody that ultimately then affects the beat writer's job, like I always do have this dream where if players would sort of be like, okay, we're never talking to Fox again until this guy stops being unfair to us. Do you know how quickly Fox Sports' executives would change the tune on Bayless and stuff like that? Because they don't want to lose access to their cash cow in the NFL. So there are ways players, I should say that, there are ways like a lot of the unfairness and just monetizing conflict and hate could stop, but it's also a little unfair to ask the players to do that. And then, as Mike says, 
the too many players unfortunately then start linking you with all the hot take artists out there and it's, I'm not even I don't even think it's their job to differentiate that you know they're not they shouldn't have be tasked with that but it is frustrating when you walk into a locker room you want to do an honest job and you got to then have to deal with the fallout of somebody on a national level just basically you know shitting on Kevin Durant just for uh additional uh additional views anyway filibuster over Deshaun, you uh you heard Rhiannon you heard Mike um I would think that you uh you would also have some um, interesting insight into this. Yeah, I would say I had a, a unique entry into this because um, I, I found out that I got the Raiders job March 2020, and about a week later, that's when the sports world shut down. Um, when you know the NBA having case zero for them with COVID 19, and you know March Madness got canceled and everything got got put on hold. Um, but like I quickly learned thereafter, like. The NFL never stops, like no matter what's going on in the world or what's going on in your personal life. Um, like, I, like you said, I've, I've been on this podcast before. You know, we talked about um, a lot of the personal uh, problems I had, you know, with losing family to the pandemic early on um, after starting on the beat in April uh, and the challenges I faced with that. But I still had to cover the draft that month, you know, um, and, you know, kind of being stuck in limbo with my move to Vegas because not really knowing what was going on with the world, like how long COVID was going to last, um, things of that nature. Um, and, you know, like it's really been nonstop since then. Like I haven't really had a whole bunch of time to like pause and, and reset um, like April like that, you know, and Rhiannon talked about some of the personal sacrifices you made like that April 2020. That was the last time that I spent a holiday with family since then. And um it's like, you know, the NFL grind is is hectic enough as is in a normal year. Um, my first year is a COVID season. Um, and then last year, you know, like the Raiders have probably one of the most hectic seasons like in NFL history. Um, you know, with Carl Nassib, you know, coming out as the first active um a player on active roster come out as being openly gay and uh Mark Davis having a, a misstep on a tweet about George Floyd in the summer and the John Gruden scandal and his eventual resignation and Henry Ruggs getting into his, his fatal car crash and, and killing a young woman in Vegas and being arrested and cut from the team. And then a week later, Damon Arnett, a first round pick um, in the same draft class as him, you know, a video emerges of him with guns threatening to kill somebody. He gets cut from the team and a uh, cornerback, one of their players gets a DUI and gets a speeding citation shortly after. And in the midst of all this, you still have 17 games to cover. Like, no matter what's going on, like you have to write about all that stuff as well, but you also have to write about that game and why it matters and the film breakdown and all that stuff and other breaking news that happens throughout the season. And like they made the playoffs somehow. And like, I got to write about that. Um, and, you know, kind of the uncertainty about, you know, are they keeping this interim coach? Are they keeping their GM? Like, are they going to beat the Bengals in the playoffs who ended up making it to the Super Bowl? And like, and then after that, you know, do you have a new coach and, and GM search and the transition that comes with that? And you're right into the draft and free agency and uh, OTAs after the draft this week. And so it's really kind of never ending. Um, and outside of the, the usual stuff that you have to do, there can be all these other external factors that are unpredictable and that you can't see coming that can make it even more hectic. And so, um, you know, I've been able to deal with it. Like, I think part of that is, as we keep saying, like, I'm only 26. I don't have any kids or anything. So, like, my like life stresses aren't what, you know, it may be for like some other people, um, even with some of the personal stuff that I've been through. So I've been able to, to navigate it, but it's definitely something that like 
if you're not good with time management or finding room to take breaks from yourself, it can, it can get overwhelming and you can get burnt out. Uh, yeah. Um, I'm glad you mentioned uh, your age, Tashan, because uh, I, I do want to thank publicly you, Mike and Rhiannon, for lowering the median age of this podcast, <laughs> which I have unfortunately <laughs> taken a little bit higher than, than you three. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, here are the final two things I want to... Um... I want to ask you about. I'm gonna stick with you, Sean, and we'll go around again. Um, you, um, you're all, uh, you know, you're all under 30, uh, which uh, really speaks to just, uh, you know, sort of how accomplished you guys are in the business, given that you're covering uh, significant professional beats uh, at this point. Um, you're all writers of color, and what I want to ask you, because obviously, um, when I started in the business, uh, the most of the press box look like me, white and male. Um, that has changed in my lifetime, but um, but not quick enough. And I'm not covering a beat right now other than the media beat. So, you know, I'm not in NFL uh, locker room. I'm not in, I'm not in the MLB locker room. So um, it's hard for me to have a better sense of sort of what, what's going on versus you guys who are there every day. So, Sean, I want to start with you just from your perspective again. Um and being young and being a person of color. Um, do you see people out there like you on, on the beat? Um, do you, do you feel like things are becoming more representative of the country at large or is it still similar to what it was like for me when I, when I, when I started, uh, in this, in the, in the late nineties. And again, the majority of the people who are covering this look like me. Oh, uh, short answer is no. Um, I mean, like on the Raiders beat, for example, um, like their internal media, the Raiders.com beat writer, uh, is, is a black man. Uh, but I'm the only black person that covers a team that works for an external outlet. That's like here in Vegas on the beat in person. Um, and, um, you know, whether it's, in the press rooms throughout the week at press conferences or, or at the stadium on the games, like you're, you're always one of few, like it's very rare that there's like a press box where you got several, several people that look like you all clustered together doing the same thing. And that's, you know, this is a reflective of what's still an industry-wide problem, um, including at the athletic. I mean, we just don't have enough black people in these roles, um, particularly, you know, beat writers and NFL writers in general. Um, you know, and like, I, w- I would say like, even, even within that, like I, my chances are seeing, of seeing an- another black man are much higher than it is, you know, seeing a black woman. That's a, a area where like they're failing, we're, we're failing with black people in general in, in this industry, but particularly with black women, like they just, there really aren't many of them that like aren't on TV essentially um, in this business. And that's something that you, you notice, you kind of just have to like, you accept it to a point. It doesn't mean like you, you stop being irritated by it or wanting it to change, but you know what it is. Like, it doesn't surprise you. I mean, like at the combine, that's why at the combine every year, we always have a gathering where, you know, most of the black writers in attendance, we all get together at least one night and have a dinner together. And uh, while it's more of us than usual in that 
that room. It's still not a very big room. Uh, and I think that's very telling considering how many beat writers and national writers and et cetera come to the combine. And it's still not that many of us there. Um, and so, you know, there's just organizations making strides towards trying to improve that, whether it's the National Association of Black Journalists or uh, the Sports Journalism Institute. Um, but they can only do so much without um, I would say like concerted and genuine effort from the media organizations to hire more black people and put them in positions and, um, make them feel more welcome in this league. Um, cause a lot of people, you know, they may break through and get into this and they just, they get so burnt out by like not seeing other people that look like them or being treated differently from their white counterparts and not getting the same opportunities that other people in the industry get and they, and they get out of it and they go do something else. And that, you know, you can't knock them for that, but it ends up hurting the numbers overall. And so, that's something that, I mean, I guess you can say that about pretty much every industry, probably in America and in the world uh, when it comes to black people and other diverse uh, peoples, but um, particularly in journalism and like how front facing we are and how much we like pride ourselves on being smart and uh, informed about things and how the world works for us to still be like failing in such like an obvious way in this area is really inexcusable. I appreciate your comments. I want to uh, go to Rianne and just with one thing that uh, play off something that Deshaun said. Uh, I remember many times uh, on the podcast that I hosted at Sports Illustrated before I left for the Athletic. It was a media podcast like this one. I think anybody listening to this knows that. And I remember uh, Jamel Hill has been a guest on this podcast many, many times. And you know, I remember we would sort of talk about how long she was the only um, black women, black woman sports columnist at a newspaper in the country and then she left and it was like kim martin was the only black woman uh sports columnist in the country um and it was always it was never more than like one person who had that um that designation and uh man that like sort of always like was such a call out uh, a subset of one that that these women were yeah i just again like uh, you know as i as i asked to sean like um when you were there, did you feel like you were seeing more people like you? Did you see? Did you feel like the, um, the those who were covering the sport um, were more reflective of the the country at large, with not just the entire um, NFL uh, sports media beat being white and male, but ultimately getting better at diversifying, whether in gender or, or whether in Weather and weather and race. From your perspective, what did you see when you were when you were actively covering the beat? No, it wasn't better. I mean, even on the Washington beat, I was the only full time black reporter. Like there was there used to be a couple of us. There was Sherry Burst, there's Kareem Copeland, who was at the Washington Post, and Sherry was over at NBC's four, and then both of them moved off the team after twenty twenty. Um so it's me for a while. And of course, there are other black people who covered it like more or less on a part time basis. But full time wise, no, it doesn't. It's not representative. I mean, frankly, I don't think I've, I've meeting another black woman is limited in my experience. But like even meeting somebody else who's in the LGBTQ community is very limited. I don't think I've actually come across somebody else who's in the community, at least open. I don't think so. Um no, it's not getting better. No, it's not being reflective of other people. I mean, I'm fortunate that I have the friends that I have. And it's a big thing whenever I see them. Like Mike stayed with me when we were, um, what's a face it or not stay with me. I shouldn't stay, but like he came over to my house and we like rode together to the game when Seattle visited last season and everything else like that. Um, just no, I, I don't, there's nothing I can't 
make it more spruced up it is what it is is that the numbers are not good they're not indicative of like the overall reflection of what the united states looks like or anything else like that and if i may be so frank honestly like i've always made this joke to people that like well what's it like to be a woman it's like honestly it's kind of great being in the press box a little bit as a woman by myself i have a bathroom to myself for the most part there's nobody that really bothers me per se i actually kind of love it low-key um but then in addition going into the locker room um i remember one person's advice to me when i went in there so like you know the makeup of the nfl is 70 percent black they were just saying that you know a lot of them like if you just continue to be the person that you are they're just going to want to work with you because it's just like you guys are going to have sort of less that unspoken connectivity. And I would be remiss if I said it wasn't true. Um, some people would refer to me as sis and all kinds of stuff like that. And like in an affectionate way, not in like a disrespectful way. Um, and just using that more or less to break the seal. I didn't have to pretend to be anything that I wasn't already. Cause at the time that I started covering the team, I was still a 25 year old black woman working in a locker room that is primarily black. I didn't have to act like the stuff that they were interested in. I was interested in, I was already interested in myself. So, I mean, I would have those natural conversations or I play sports at a decent level. So, I mean, I could talk about that. I mean, shoot, even like Mike could speak to this too. Like Mike just out, did the uh, media, like combine, whatever the case may be. I mean, the players can see the videos of him running his, uh, his 40 speed and everything else like that. They're making jokes about it. Or even for instance, like he just got uh, what's basically extended. And like, I forget, is it, Qu- it Quandre Diggs? Like he was out here tweeting about how Mike just got his extension. That speaks to the kind of relationships that you can build when you have those kinds of relationships with people. And I wouldn't say I had anything to the extent that Mike does or anything along those lines, but I had very close relationships, even to the point where um, I was with Robert Mays talking about Dwayne Haskins and stuff like that. I'm in the same age group as these guys. I'm the same race and ethnicity as a lot of these folks. We have a lot of similar experiences in some way, shape, and form. I'm not intimidated by talking to them. It's just very copacetic and normal. And so to me, frankly, a lot of that played into my favor. It may not work so much in the press box. I don't have to look like me there. But for the people that I'm actually covering, the people that I need to you know, talk to, hear their stories and things of that nature, they do look like me. So to be frank, I was never really too uncomfortable. Um, it's just the newsroom doesn't reflect what's happening in the locker room. It doesn't reflect what's happening in the broader United States of America either. But I don't want it to sound like doom and gloom per se, because I just now named like multiple ways that even being a minority working in that space actually still was advantageous to me. Um, And I didn't have a whole bunch of issues as a result of that, even still. Mike. Um, Let's see. Well, no, I definitely ain't no black people here um, covering the Seahawks. I that's, that's real simple. We had, we have to, we got the homie Maz Vita uh, for Cascadia.net, and that's really it. Yeah, the only other time we had three at least, or we we actually had three at one point. It was me, Maz, and then Aaron Fentress, who used to cover uh, with me at the Athletic, and then uh, he's not here no more. We had the homie Ben Arthur from the Seattle PI. Uh, I I used to work at the Seattle PI, so when I left, I recommended Ben. And then he got the job. So I was like, oh, that's dope. Like two years later, now Ben covers the Titans for the Tennesseans. So now he gone. Um, so, yeah, it's I wrote about in my thing when I signed uh, with the Athletic initially in 2018. I'm pretty sure I shouted out like the only other black dude that was not a former player that I consistently saw in the press box was the dude who stands outside the door of the press box. I always dap him up, show him love. Older black dude. I don't even know his name. But we just see each other in his love um, because it ain't but so many of us uh, up in there. So, yeah, I don't really think I don't think it'll get much better, which is crazy uh, because my weird thing on this has been like if I was an editor, 
right? I would want to be like advantageous, you know, because I would look at it from a business standpoint. So if I was like covering a sport where like if I was like, a, I need a hockey writer, right? And like most of the players are from, I don't know, Canada or something. I would want someone from Canada, you know, in the locker room with them, or, you know, talking to them. Same thing if I was like needing a baseball writer and I was like, all right, we're in San Diego. I need a baseball writer. Most of the people on the Padres speak Spanish. So I'm going to really try to hire a Spanish speaking beat writer, you know, so I can have that person maneuver that locker room or clubhouse or whatever better than everyone else. Like It's like almost like a market inefficiency because like you said, Rich, you walk in, bunch of white dudes, males and like middle aged, right? All right, we can exploit this. Same thing if I covered it NBA beat. Most of them, most of them dudes is black. So I'm going to hire someone black kind of finesse that again exploit the market inefficiency same thing with the nfl and that just has not happened and i know why that's not happened but it's like weird because that's even if you don't like care whether you're hiring women or black people or whoever like just from a competitive business standpoint to stay afloat to make sure everybody gets their christmas bonus i would change my hiring process just off the strength for that alone like all the players in the nfl is our age. Like Quandre Diggs, yeah, he, he broke the news that I re-signed. Quandre's exactly my age, both 29. I think we graduated high school the same year. Now he's from Texas, I'm from Seattle. But like, we see each other as, as like equals. Like he see me like, oh, okay. You look like me, listen to the same music, you're dressing the same, we following the same people on Instagram, we're doing all the same stuff, talk the same, walk the same, whatever. And that's half the damn locker room. So it's like advantageous to have me in there. Not to say that I can't relate to all the linemen, half of them white dudes, but like I can, cause then there's an age thing there too. But I can get my point. It's kind of weird that like, as tough as journalism has gone through it the last few years with people lay layoffs and people pivot into video and all these other things people are doing a cutting costs. Ain't no, but like the beat writing hiring hasn't adjusted just from a competitive standpoint. If I was an editor, my, my, my NFL beat writer staff would be black as hell. You know, and it, it, like I said, hockey, baseball, I would have it reflect that because it's competitive. It's kind of weird that that hasn't even happened yet. Uh, you guys give me 71 minutes. Thank you. This will be the last thing. First of all, I think you totally nailed it. Um, and one of the things I was thinking about when you mentioned market inefficiency for like anybody who sort of cares about this and it's very specific to Toronto because that's where I live. One of the things Masai Ujiri, uh, who is the president of the Raptors and you know, arguably one of the best sports executives uh, regardless of sport – in the world has always talked about was he looks in particular um, to hire women in certain positions because of that fact, because it's a forget about just obviously making your organization reflective of the world. There's a legit market inefficiency in sports, particularly sports management, that you're cutting off 50% of a population, which is he, in his words, is just insane. And the Raptors organization has women in a lot of quote unquote, non-traditional uh, jobs that women have had in sports and he's clearly on to something just look at the success of the organization so I'm with you Mike just if you I mean even if you like don't give a shit about anything else if you just look at it as a competitive business play it makes total sense to do um, what you're saying but you know unfortunately I'm uh, I'm not Elon Musk and I don't have 4.4 billion dollars uh, to change the world at the moment that's my shitty segue to get to finish up on Twitter uh, Sean, I want to start with you. All three of you are obviously very active on Twitter. Given when you were born, social media is a massive impact uh, in your lives. Uh, in many ways, it's sort of where you work, where you live. Um, you were raised on it compared to my generation, and you have to think of it differently than I do. And so I want to just sort of end on this, and it's a little away from the NFL, but you saw Elon Musk buy Twitter. 
Um, there's a lot of thoughts about now sort of what Twitter will become or, uh, and it's very vital obviously for people in our business to be on social media because it's our, one of our best ways to get information. But more than that, it's one of the best platforms where you as an individual can send out your stuff independent of the athletic or independent of whatever employer you are. Uh, so I wanted to just get your general reaction as to, um, what you thought about when you saw that news that, that Twitter is, uh, has been bought by the world's richest man and is uh, soon to be heading uh, to, to private over public. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I've, I've garnered a sense that Elon Musk seems to be like a pretty weird guy. But I mean, I don't like necessarily view him any differently than like, I would say like any other white billionaire, you know, so I don't know, like, if I like, feel that much differently about Twitter being owned by him instead of Jack, who's from St. Louis. I'm from St. Louis. I guess I have a, more of an affinity for Jack. Yeah, but like, I mean, it's just all the same to me um, in terms of like, I don't know if he's doing like any wholesale like changes to the app. Like that would suck because I like Twitter and like, I think it's an effective way, like uh, if done properly for like journalists that are actually journalists to like communicate with their readership and uh, send out your work and, and build your following and kind of make a name for yourself. Like there's a lot of bad stuff on Twitter, but I think it's a useful tool uh, for for us within our industry that are doing things, uh, you know, quote unquote, the right way. Um, but yeah, I guess it's kind of interesting. I mean, I, I'm even though I'm younger, like I still like vividly re remember like a world before social media really took hold. Like I would say like it wasn't until I, I was like early in high school where I really like started to like lean into social media like that. Um, and so like, you know, throughout my childhood and like I knew how to function without it. But so but, like this new generation is kind of like the, the world revolves around it and um just naturally from from being in this industry ours kind of has to too i mean like you can't really it's really hard like as a beat writer to like do this job if you're not plugged in on twitter or instagram or all the other social media platforms so it's something that you you know is really even though it's not in your contract anything like that is, is part of your job and so it naturally just has to matter to you how these platforms evolve and change but um you know i guess we'll see you know like if he ends up like fucking up twitter and like uh, it's Rhiannon, a different uh, app and like on, uh, it takes twitter away what makes it help for us then maybe i'll feel away but as it stands now like it doesn't really like change things for me and, too you know much. closing like, in on uh, um, is on the owner twenty thousand followers although again like follower counts on twitter are always sort of like suspect because you know who knows what who knows who's real who's active bots etc but the reality is i mean you've been on the service for 10 years so you certainly had experience in terms of uh, what it means for you uh, professionally, personally, et cetera. Um, do you have any thoughts on uh, on uh, Musk buying the service and and what it how it might impact you as a as a as a journalist as a practitioner? Uh, you know, I feel like to Sean, but I guess I'm sitting here thinking to myself, wow, it's crazy that. I forget which organization, but the fact that it's not like I believed him, but it's just, it's, it's not even amusing. It's just like Ellen Musk literally said, if I, I forget again, the organization that said, Hey, if, you know, if they can give me the numbers, what it would take to end world hunger, I will definitely put the money towards it. It was like $6 billion. And now here we are with this Tom Fullery. He's willing to pay almost eight times more for the bird app because somebody was was talking trash about him. I don't feel any way about a billionaire doing what they have historically always done, which is whatever they want to do. And in this situation, buying an app because people are talking, excuse my friend, shit about 
of them and he has dead skin i'm praying that it continues to operate the way that it has you know you know i guess you can buy it and just keep the same people in place but i feel like that's entirely too optimistic of thinking i'm sure there's going to be some change made some way i just don't know how if it's something that requires a cost i'll be completely over the entire situation because one of the things that i've personally changed a lot about is that i don't spend a lot of time on social media if i don't have to be on social media it's just not something i am entirely invested in anymore like even like commenting on things like when there are major events happening i tend to actually not be on my phone as much as possible all my friends know my phone stays on dnd i'm just not i'm just not on my phone like so at some level i can see where it could be a problem in the future i just don't know where exactly right now but i hope it isn't i enjoy twitter for what it is like just scrolling sometimes to watch the madness happening etc etc but we'll see what happens but I'm not surprised by what Ellen Musk did. I mean, as soon as they announced that he was going to be like he was going to be on the board and he's not on the board and stuff like that, I, I could see the writing on the wall that he was going to try to buy this app. Yeah, to predict what will happen is just foolish, but people don't – I just can tell you my experience in media reporting, media writing. Uh, people don't purchase or buy things unless they're going to change said things. Um, so we shall see. Mike, I'll, uh, I'll give you the uh, – the final word here on, uh, again, um, you know, this has been obviously a very important platform for you. I think, uh, you know, one of the great things about the service is like if I'm a Seahawks fan in, uh, you know, Maine, I can cover, I can follow you and I feel like I'm totally plugged into the into the team uh, as I sort of check on this. You've been on this since June of 2009. Um and you know you're closing in on thirty thousand followers. I mean that's you know, that's a major audience that uh, that you have. So I wonder again how you just saw the the news that just broke over the last twenty four hours, and how you might think it how you might think it will impact you, if at all. Uh, well, yeah, I'm a big you know, big 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 rap guy, and I one of those like subgenres of rap that I enjoy is like bragging raps. Um, actually, I think probably me and Tashawn both enjoy these. We both Drake fans. Like, you know, I think 2 Chains one time said when he gets a flat tire, he just buys a new car. Right? And that's like ridiculous, right? As a flex, you know, so I'm big on flexes. Elon buying Twitter is probably one of the bigger flexes you can have. Like, you know, like I'm about to buy Twitter. You know, I, I, I just got a raise you know, at the company and I was thinking like, yeah, I might buy another chain. You know, so I can wear <laughs> four a day. You know, so I usually wear three. Uh, that the fourth feels like a flex, you know. Buying Twitter though, woo! That 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 that's pretty wild. Um, with, that was like my my first and like really just mainly only thought I was like, yo, you know how rich you got to even be to like even think about that. Like I've been joking with the homies, like we should all put up on Russell Wilson's house, right? They just sold on the east side of Seattle. It's going for like twenty eight mil. <clears throat> Excuse me, it's going for twenty eight mil. I'm like, all right, who's got who's got ups on it? Let's put up on it, like. That's crazy that how many people it would take for us to just put up on a $28 million house. This cat uh, did some real deal billionaire shit and bought bought Twitter. Uh, but like just on Twitter in, in general, I really think like Rich, the point you made about connecting with people everywhere. That's probably the besides just getting my news from it, because I really read a lot of stories. The bookmark feature is huge for me. I just bookmark hella stories and read them later. Like besides that part of it, connecting with people is crazy on there. Like um, the Seahawks are probably going to play in Germany this year against the Bucks and like there's a huge German following or Seahawks following over there in Germany and I can tap into that because they're all over Twitter the German Seahawkers groups follows me 
And I went to London for a Seahawks game. I met the London, the UK Seahawkers group, and it was deep out there. You know, like one of, one of the guys in that group was like one of my closest friends now. Like, and I hung out with him when I was out there. And they come out here for games once a year, and I kick it with them. Seahawks fans got have people in Spain and Brazil and stuff. Like, it, it's pretty crazy. And like, Twitter has allowed me to like tap into that in a way that wasn't possible with traditional beat writer coverage. You know, however many years ago so that part's been pretty surreal like the first time i was on a podcast in london i was like yo i really felt like i was the shit but like i made it and just last off season one of the homies in germany wrote a seahawks book he asked me to do the forward i was like yo that's crazy you know and that was all basically off him you know following me on twitter he sent me a copy of the book and it's all in german so i can't read nothing but the forward but it's just cool to have a book you know like like twitter's kind of been crazy i think twitter's like really a mess like largely outside of sports too, you know, one of my homies deletes it like almost every year. And I'm like really proud of him that he self cares in that way. Like if I didn't, wasn't into sports in this way, I probably wouldn't have it. But yeah, like the way I've been able to use it is, it's been pretty dope. So I hope Elon doesn't fuck that up. I appreciate those, uh, those answers. Yeah. It's one of the, uh, it's one of the best and worst inventions of my lifetime. I, w- I would sort of leave it at that. Uh, without doing uh, another 20 minutes on it. Um, all right. You guys gave me, a crazy amount of time, and I'm paying you absolutely nothing. So thank you uh, for this. Let me uh, let me give everybody's uh, bio very quickly again. Uh, Michael Sean Dugar covers the Seahawks for the Athletic. Uh, catch his uh, work on the site, as well as you can go uh, follow him, as we just mentioned on uh, Twitter. Let me make sure I have his handle right. It's at m i k e d u G A R. So anything Seahawks related, he's uh, he's the absolute guy to go to. Sean Reed covers the Raiders for the Athletic. Uh, should be a very very busy man this weekend uh, as uh, the whole world descends upon um, Las Vegas. Sean, just like as a, as a New Yorker who unfortunately has had to live in New York during many New Years, uh, it does feel like a little amateur hour coming to your city. I hope I'm wrong on this, but uh, you know, stay safe. When you're in there with the the, the massive crowds that are going to be floating through the uh, through the through the strip, but Sean covers uh, the Raiders for the Athletic. Uh, you can follow him at uh, at t a s h a n r e e d. Again, an absolute must follow for uh, for really fascinating uh, fascinating team. Check out his uh, his excellent work. And then Rhiannon Walker. Uh, again, you can follow her stuff. Um, on the athletic as well, she's doing a lot of uh, uh, feature work at the moment. But I think if um, you're listening to this and uh, you're a Washington football fan, you obviously know her work from uh, from covering that team. Her Twitter handle is at i n s t a n t capital R capital H capital I P L A Y, and you can follow her work um, on uh, on that site. In addition to the athletic. Um, Mike, Tashawn, Rhiannon, this was really interesting for me. Uh, thank you for this. Thanks for your insight when it comes to covering the NFL draft. But beyond that, I just appreciate your honesty when it comes to sort of being a an NFL beat reporter, particularly under 30. I got great admiration for you guys. Uh, after the athletic kicks me to the curb, which probably will not be too long from now, I expect you three to, uh, to lead that fine site in the future, and uh, you'll get my whatever, $71 a year for, for that uh, – for that privilege. Uh, Rhiannon, Mike, Deshaun, thanks so much today for joining me on the Sports Media Podcast.
All right, back in the studio. My thanks to uh, to Mike, to, to Sean, and Rhiannon uh, for giving me a ton of time. This was almost 80 minutes, uh, but I think really, really interesting. And I appreciate their honesty and their, their insight. And this was really, really good. If you like these kind of conversations, head to the Sports Media Richard Deitch Archives page. Uh, leave us a uh, five-star review and a nice note. That is how these podcasts continue. The previous uh, podcast was with Susie Culber of ESPN on uh, her work on the NFL Draft. Before that, Gus Johnson. I'm calling the NBA again. Had ESPN investigator reporter Paul Levine and ESPN senior writer Tom Junode on their piece on Todd Hodney, uh, the uh, the serial predator and uh, murderer from uh, from Penn State. Lisa Byington and Kate Scott were guests on this podcast. Uh, Joe Davis, the new voice of the World Series, was a guest uh, not too long ago. Paul Heyman on being part of WrestleMania 38 and how to align yourself with greatness, uh, covering war. The Washington Post, Isabella Krasudian on what it's like to be based in Odessa, Ukraine right now. So hopefully something you will enjoy and listen to. Um, I want to thank Patrick Antonetti for his uh, hard work this week uh, putting together two podcasts. Thanks to everybody at Canes 13. And thank you for listening. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast.